Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. At the age of 17, Carla Walker was in love with her 18-year-old boyfriend, Rodney McCoy, and both of them lived in Fort Worth, Texas. Rodney was the starting quarterback of the football team, and Carla was a cheerleader and junior at Western Hills High School in Benbrook, Texas, a suburb of Fort Worth. She was described as a little spitfire with a caring and passionate personality. Standing only 4'11", she didn't think twice about letting people know her opinion and standing up for herself and others. Her boyfriend, Rodney, became very close with Carla's family while they were dating, and they had a great relationship with plans to attend college together. On February 16, 1974, Carla and Rodney attended a Valentine's Day dance as Mr. and Mrs. Western Hills High. Afterward, they drank and smoked pot with friends and then stopped by Taco Bell before making a stop at the local bowling alley. He then drove the other couple back to their car at the high school before returning to the bowling alley parking lot. While there, Carla and him were making out and she was leaned back on the passenger door when all of a sudden, someone opened the door and they began falling out. While holding on to Carla, Rodney began receiving multiple blows to the back of his head from a pistol, which caused him to start bleeding. All the while, Carla was yelling at the unknown person to stop. At some point, the man pointed the gun at Rodney in an attempt to shoot him, but during the attack, the magazine had fallen out, so he continued pistol whipping him. Carla eventually said, I'll go with you, just don't shoot him, and turned to Rodney and told him to go get her father. For a moment, Rodney blacked out from the blows, but once he regained consciousness, he raced off to Carla's home in a bloody panic. Once he got there, he kept telling her dad they got her. This repeated use of the word they would ultimately place suspicion on Rodney because he said he only saw one person and no one could understand why he would say they. However, I personally don't think it is uncommon for people to use the word they when referring to someone they don't know. While Rodney was taken to the hospital, her father, along with the police, went straight to the parking lot where they found blood and a gun magazine on the ground. A local man by the name of Glenn McCurley had purchased the exact type of magazine from a gun store days before the murder. At this point, McCurley became a person of interest in the case. He was ultimately arrested and questioned in the investigation, but was released due to a lack of evidence and passing a lie detector test that he volunteered to take. He claimed the gun had been stolen weeks before, and he did not report it since it was illegal for him to own a gun as he was a convicted felon. 
A search ensued for Carla, and three days later, she was found in a storm culvert near Benbrook Lake, not far from where she was taken. She was still wearing the beautiful ripped blue dress that she had borrowed from her sister for the dance. Rumors began circulating that she had been abducted, held hostage for two days, tortured, sexually assaulted, and injected with morphine before she was strangled and killed. In 1974, morphine was sparsely available and not well known about and used primarily for soldiers in Vietnam. But the medical examiner reported that she had been killed days earlier, likely soon after she was abducted. But due to the cold and dry weather, her body was preserved and when she was found, it appeared to detectives that she had very recently died, meaning she had been held hostage, when in fact, she was murdered within hours after being abducted and their assumptions were incorrect. One initial suspect was 21-year-old Tommy Ray Neyland, who actually confessed to the crime but failed the polygraph and there was lack of evidence tying him to the case. Two months after Carla's murder, in April 1974, Neelan abducted a teenage girl in nearby Arlington and tried to sexually assault her, but she escaped. He was identified by the victim and subsequently confessed and was sentenced to life in prison, but was paroled in 1987. However, he returned to custody after violating the terms of his parole. Three years later, in 1977, Jimmy Dean Sasser told police that he killed Carla. Sasser was charged and indicted for the crime, but seven months later, he was released from prison and admitted that he lied about it because his marriage had fallen apart. Sasser said his knowledge of alleged facts in the case came from a variety of sources. How did you come to pick Carla Walker's case, Jimmy? Well, I don't know, really. I just got out of the clear blue sky, just, you know, made the story up. I don't really know. Is it true you led the investigators to the culvert where her body was found? Yes, sir, that is true. How did you have that kind of knowledge? Well, it was showed to me a couple of years ago when I was out with a friend of mine drinking. He showed me, said he thought that that was the spot where she was found lying dead, and I just took it up from there, you see. The whole thing's embarrassing to me. It's just, I really don't know what to say. You think that the whole thing has changed your life for the better here? Yes, sir, it sure has. You may not believe this, but since I've been in jail, I've changed my life. I've turned my life over to God. And he's going to help me from a drink. Investigators decided to have Rodney hypnotized after a psychic they enlisted help from failed to turn up any clues. During hypnosis, Rodney recalled details of the man's face while holding Carla's arm while she sat on the ground. The only details he provided that were new were the new details of the killer's face. Even with this information, the case would go cold for 45 years. Then in 2019, cold case detectives reopened her case, hoping to get somewhere with the new advancements of technology available to them. They revealed a letter from an anonymous source, which was written shortly after the killing, stating that blank killed Carla. It is hard to say, but it is true. The name had been redacted by police and released so that someone may recognize the writing and possibly give a tip. In fact, the name redacted was Rodney's name, and a postscript read, her boyfriend is the killer. Police never released this information before, but this began a fresh new look at the case. At some point, one of her old friends from school decided to create a Facebook page dedicated to her with the hopes of generating new leads. 
This is when a former classmate of Carla, Jay Boussard, posted information which prompted police to question him. Boussard told police that around the time of the murder, his father, a physician, often had packs of morphine, and he would often steal the pills, and these pills were likely the source of the morphine found in her system. However, he did not ever giving or selling her the pills, but recalled many pills being stolen from his car around the time of her murder. He admitted that he saw Carla and Rodney that night at Taco Bell and then saw Rodney at the bowling alley in his car and recalled they appeared under the influence that night. He said he believed that two other classmates, Bo and Brian, were responsible for her murder because he had seen them at the bowling alley that night and had a bad reputation. Also in 2019, her family was told that after the murder, the sperm sample retrieved from her body was never received at the lab, and the only sperm sample they had was from her dress, which was not enough for a complete DNA profile to be created. It was also many years after her murder before her family would find out that she had not been held captive and tortured for days, but instead killed just hours after her abduction. It was also revealed by cold case detectives that Carla may not have been injected with morphine, but instead could have taken the pill herself for recreational purposes. Meanwhile, new testing was done on Carla's ripped dress and other clothing. This is when more semen was found on her bra, which would finally produce a complete DNA profile of the killer. Using genetic genealogy, investigators were able to match the DNA to one of the initial persons of interest, Glenn McCurley. DNA taken from his trash in July 2020 matched the DNA found on Carla's clothing, and he was arrested two months later. 77-year-old McCurley was questioned again decades later about Carla's murder, but he stood firm saying he did not kill Carla or even know who she was and began crying. Glenn McCurley, in his own words. I didn't do anything like that. He said he couldn't explain why his DNA was found on her clothing. After being arrested for her murder, he came up with a story and told detectives he had been out drinking the night of the crime. He said he parked in a parking lot and noticed a girl screaming in her boyfriend's car because her boyfriend was beating her up. He said he walked over to help her out and got the girl out of the car after a tussle with her boyfriend and put her in his car. He said she was so thankful that he got her away from Rodney that she let him have sex with her. Detectives then informed him that she was a virgin and had not even had sex with her boyfriend of two years, so this story didn't make much sense. However, he continued to deny raping and strangling her to death before letting out a sob and then confessed to the murder. He said he killed her after sexually assaulting and beating her in his car because he didn't want to get into trouble. In 1974, he was a 31-year-old married man with two sons working as a truck driver. During his testimony, much of the audio in the video interrogation is difficult to hear, but McCurley can eventually be heard stating, I guess I choked her to death. Seemingly confessing. McCurley didn't know Carla, and it was a crime of opportunity. On August 24, 2021, 46 years after the murder, he pleaded guilty to her kidnapping and murder and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. 
He didn't admit to writing the anonymous letter, and it was most likely written as a horrible prank. Many now wonder if McCurley had other victims while he was free for nearly 50 years, such as the Fort Worth Trio. After graduation, Rodney moved to Alaska with a lot of guilt, believing that he let her father and the rest of her family down by not keeping her safe, but was happy to finally have his name cleared of suspicion all these years later. Brittany Marie Drexel was born in Rochester, New York on October 7, 1991 to teenagers John and Dawn. After her parents separated, Brittany remained with her mother in Chile, New York, and her father moved to Florida, becoming estranged from Brittany for many years. With her father being out of the picture, her stepfather, Chad Drexel, would assume the role and eventually adopt her. In 2009, Brittany was a junior at Gates Chile High School and excelling in soccer. She was described as outgoing, independent, and strong-minded, and was very interested in fashion and cosmetology. In April of that same year, at the age of 17, she asked her mother for permission to go spend spring break in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina with three seniors from her school. Myrtle Beach is well known for spring breakers who go to party and have a good time. Her mother told her no because she didn't feel comfortable allowing her to go 14 hours away with older kids that she didn't know and with no adult supervision. However, Brittany relentlessly continued to beg her mother to let her go, but she wouldn't give in. As the day grew closer, Brittany came up with a plan to try to fool her mother. She asked to compromise, and instead of going to Myrtle Beach, she would spend spring break with a friend about 20 minutes away near Lake Ontario. Her mother then spoke on the phone to who she thought was the girl's mother, but was actually a friend of Brittany's pretending to be her mother. On April 23, 2009, Brittany made the bold decision to then hop in a car with her friends to travel 14 hours away to South Carolina. While there, she stayed in communication with her boyfriend of three years, John Greco, back home, who knew exactly what she was up to. She also spoke to her mother several times while there, but continued to lie about where she was. But this communication would suddenly stop, causing her boyfriend John to become very concerned. Come to find out, her friends couldn't find her either. At this point, John decided to tell her mother what was going on because he was afraid for Brittany. Her loved ones, knowing something was seriously wrong, notified authorities and drove to Myrtle Beach to search for her. Her father said he will never forget having to search in disgusting dumpsters in hopes of finding his daughter. Meanwhile, her boyfriend provided as much information as he could. He knew that she had wanted to come home early and had separated herself from the other three partiers as they were partying a little too hard for her liking. She spent some time with another Rochester native that was also there on vacation named Peter Brozowitz, a 20-year-old nightclub promoter at the time. Soon after news broke of her disappearance, the internet became bombarded with horrific theories of what could have happened to her, which was extremely difficult for her loved ones. During the investigation, it was learned that Brittany left her friends at the Bar Harbor Hotel around 8 p.m. to walk over a mile to the Blue Water Resort on Ocean Boulevard, where other friends were staying. 
Surveillance cameras there show her going into the resort, then leaving sometime after 8.30 p.m. 45 minutes later, she sent a text message to one of her friends saying she was going to see a friend who was staying at another hotel. She was last seen on surveillance footage leaving the Blue Water Hotel where Peter was staying and had reportedly gone to his hotel to pick up her shoes that she had left in his car. Myrtle Beach detectives said that they believed she was abducted as she walked the one-mile stretch of Ocean Boulevard between the two hotels. They believed that she may have been snatched off the street or willingly accepted a ride from the wrong person. Her cell phone pinged seven miles south of Myrtle Beach about 30 minutes after being seen on video surveillance. Then, two and a half hours later, at nearly midnight, her cell phone pinged once again, but this time it was 50 miles south of Myrtle Beach in McClellanville near US-17 and the Charleston County line in a swampy area. However, massive searches for her turned up nothing. The last person known to see her was Peter, who quickly became a person of interest when it was discovered that he had checked out of his hotel at 1 a.m. just a few hours after she left his hotel. Not only did he strangely check out suddenly at 1 a.m., he and his friend left many of their belongings behind in the hotel room. With no other evidence, no arrests were made, and the case would sadly go cold. Meanwhile, investigators shifted their focus to a local convicted child rapist named Raymond Moody. He was not only on the investigators' radar in Brittany's disappearance, but was also a person of interest in the disappearance of 28-year-old Crystal Souls. Moody had served 21 years of a 40-year sentence in prison for abducting an 8-year-old girl from a playground in California in 1983 and had molested many others. Although both women were presumed dead, authorities continued to search in the rugged terrain between Myrtle Beach and the Sunset Lodge apartment that Moody moved into the day prior to Brittany's disappearance, which is located nearly 50 miles south of Myrtle Beach. However, Moody refused to cooperate with police. Years later, an inmate behind bars on unrelated manslaughter charges by the name of Taquan Brown came forward to say that he witnessed what happened to Brittany. He said she was taken by Deshaun Taylor to the town of McClellanville and passed around in a stash house as a sex slave, beaten, murdered, and her body thrown in a swampy alligator pit. When questioned, Taylor denied having ever met Brittany or Taquan Brown, who accused him of murdering Brittany. On March 4, 2022, 13 years after her disappearance, one of the original persons of interest, Raymond Douglas Moody, was arrested and charged with obstruction of justice. Two months later, he led investigators to the location of Brittany's body. He led them to some woods along Old Town Avenue in Georgetown County, where they believe he buried her body a day after she went missing. Authorities said Moody kidnapped and strangled her the same day she disappeared. He was then charged with murder, kidnapping, and first-degree criminal sexual conduct. It hasn't been released to the public the reason he confessed, but regardless, if he had served his entire 40-year sentence beginning in 1983, Brittany could still be alive. Unfortunately, he was allowed out early for good behavior. 
This reminds me of another case where the kidnapper of 11-year-old J.C. Dugard was paroled early after committing multiple rapes, but still had four years left to go. If he would have remained in prison and served his entire sentence, she wouldn't have been his sex slave for 18 long years and wouldn't have birthed two of his children while his wife stood by and supported his every move. As of today, Moody remains a person of interest in the murder of 19-year-old Shannon McConaughey and the disappearance of 28-year-old Crystal Souls. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.